0: Welcome to another inspirational message from London Live Church. You're listening to our Sermon of the Week. To Tell the Truth. To Tell the Truth is the title of an American television game show that started airing back in 1956, if my memory serves me well. Not that I was there at the time, but I read it somewhere. And um, the show had its periods of. Greater or lesser popularity over the years, and it stopped streaming, it stopped oh, streaming, stopped airing a few times in its history. And then in 2016, it had somewhat of a comeback, and it's still on television now to tell the truth. And the basic premise of this television game show is that there is a panel, um, usually of, made up of four celebrities, and they are presented with three people. Now, one of those three people is the so-called central character, and this is normally a person that has some sort of unusual occupation or or some sort of unusual experience. And the other two are so-called imposters, and the hosts briefly reads a, a short description of the occupation or the experience of the central character and then the task of the panelists is to ask questions and based on the answers that the three people give them decide on who is the central character and who are the imposters. Now the imposters are allowed to lie and give false answers to the questions however the central character must always tell the truth and at the end of the show after the panelists have taken their guesses the host then asks his famous question will the real and then the name of the central character please stand up so will the real isaac asimov please stand up will the real cab calloway please stand up will the real ernie smith please stand up. And all of these three people have been central characters in the show over the years. And and this phrase, will the real, and then the name of the person or the thing, please stand up. Over the years, it took somewhat of a life of its own. From examples that um, I'm sure some of you are familiar with, from rap song titles to uh, political book titles, to, to campaign slogans, to ads and commercial, will the real and then whatever you think isn't real, please stand up? It has become almost a meme in its own right. In the book of Acts, we, we find the followers of Jesus, led by the 11 apostles, asking the same question and facing, a, a, a frankly, a unique challenge. Will the real apostle please stand up is the question on their lips and on their minds. Or in other words, who fits the criteria to be an apostle, a real apostle? But as always, we need to look outside of this episode and outside of this story in order to understand it. So this is, this is the context of what is going on in the scripture that was so beautifully read to us just now. After the resurrection of Jesus, he appeared to his disciples and he kept appearing to them over a period of 40 days. This is what the beginning of the book of Acts tells us. And he kept talking to them and speaking to them about the kingdom of God. And he instructed them. He gave them specific instructions to stay in Jerusalem and wait for an event that was coming up, which was the coming of the Holy Spirit. And then he ascended in front of their eyes and he was taken away on a cloud and two men appeared telling them the same way you see him going up will be the same way you see him coming down when he returns. And on Thursday, as I mentioned earlier, most of the Christians in, um, in the western part of the world celebrated and commemorated this event, the ascension of our Lord But just before Jesus ascended and was taken away in a cloud, the very last thing that Jesus said while he was still on this earth, even after his resurrection, the last thing that the disciples rather asked Jesus was the following. Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? Is this the time? when you will restore the kingdom to Israel. Now, the funny thing about this question is that they were following Jesus throughout his ministry. They heard all the sermons. They heard all the teachings. Uh, they, They listened to everything he said. They watched him rebuke Peter on this very issue because he held some similar ideas. And yet, still now, after his resurrection, After him appearing in his resurrected body, in his resurrected reality, and still speaking to them about the kingdom of God, they are still obsessed with this one idea and this one idea only, the restoration of the kingdom to Israel. And so they gathered as Jesus instructed them. They gathered in Jerusalem after being told off by him yet again for holding such views and asking such questions and they locked themselves up in a room and and we are told that they started praying and 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 there was the 11 apostles and jesus's brothers and some women including his mother and this is what their prayers and the time they spent together this is what their prayers inspired them to do as we read peter stood up and gathered all the believers, which we are told were around one hundred and twenty people, and he explained why they now had to replace Judas, they had to find someone who will be the twelfth apostle and take judas' place and Then he quotes two psalms and, and, and he finds in those psalms predictions of judas 's betrayal and and also a justification for the necessity of this replacement and and I will tell you that most most modern theologians would find this type of um, interpretation, this hermeneutic that that he is employing here, well problematic to say the least uh, if, if if I did something if I read the psalms in this manner um, in in let's say Dr. Ramey's class or Dr. Ivanov's class, oh boy, that would fail me. Um, but it's there It's there. it's left for us, and, and we have to confront it and, and and whether whether Peter said this himself. Or whether this is Luke or whoever wrote the book of Acts that is putting these ideas and this particular readings of the Psalms in Peter's mouth, I don't know. But they are there and they testify to the dominant mindset among the believers at that time. And we may ask the question, why was it so important to them? To Peter and his mates why was it so important that they replace Judas why did they why did they read the Psalms the way they did why did they find justifications for their actions in the Psalms in scripture in this way why did they interpret scripture in such a manner and I believe that the main reason has to do with their last question to Jesus and 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 frankly the the, the main preoccupation since the very first day they met him. And that is the restoration of the kingdom to Israel. You see, their ideas about what the Messiah should be doing and what the Messiah is meant to accomplish were really stubborn and and, and, and difficult to, to eliminate and very deeply rooted. And it didn't help either that. In one occasion jesus promised them he told them that that they would sit on 12 thrones and that they would judge the 12 tribes of israel so so this is this is i i I allow myself the imagination to reconstruct their thinking this is this is what they were thinking they said we don't know when this will be this restoration of the kingdom when we will be sitting on thrones and judging the tribes jesus told us that only the father knows this is the last thing he said before he ascended so we have to wait, fair enough, but we have another problem, and the problem is there's only 11 of us, and there's 12 tribes and 12, 12 thrones, and there's only 11 of us, so we need to fix this. And the idea, that, that the idea was that whenever the restoration of the kingdom to Israel comes, they need to be ready, and they need to have all 12 people ready and on board and also if nothing else at least at least the idea was that their little band of apostles which was this kind of microcosm of the kingdom will at least symbolically be restored to some sort of wholeness if they replace Judas the traitor and if they fill his place so that the number is 12 again and at this point we need to we need to say a word about Judas. We need to talk about Judas. Judas is remembered throughout history as the quintessential bad guy. Um, Judas has become a meme in and of himself. Judas the traitor, Judas the betrayer. Uh, Judas' kiss has become an expression for when someone is, is appearing to be your friend but is actually stabbing you behind the back. But what exactly was Judas' Judas's sin? The Bible tells us that Judas was known as Judas Iscariot. And there are many theories as to what this meant and, and where this title came from, what was the origin, the etymology of this title, of his so-called surname. Uh, but at least one group of scholars believe that Iscariot, the word Iscariot is connected to the word Sikari, plural, or Sicarius, singular. And you see, the, the Sicarii were a revolutionary group um, in Israel at that time, there were, which, which were associated with the zealots. And the agenda of both of these groups was the liberation from Roman rule and the restoration of the kingdom to Israel. And The name Sicarii meant the dag- dagger man, Dagger men, because of their, um, you can either call them large knives or small swords uh, that they carried called sikka. And this, this dagger, this sikka, they would use these daggers to perform very deliberate political assassinations that were performed in broad daylight in public spaces, and then they would use the presence of the crowd to, to blend with the crowd and just disappear without a trace, disappear unnoticed. Their, their way of operating was similar, and some believe it inspired um, later uh, groups um, like, for example, the Hashashin of Syria and Persia, and later the Ninja in Japan. So according to this view, Judas Iscariot, Judas the Sicario, Judas the Ninja, Judas the Assassin, was called this because he was in one way or another, in some way associated with this group. Now if if this is true, then Judas wanted the same thing that the rest of the disciples wanted the restoration of the king, of the kingdom to Israel. So when he when he betrayed Jesus, when he betrays Jesus and gets him arrested, he's not doing it because he doesn't want he wants Jesus to fail. He's not doing it because he doesn't like Jesus or because he doesn't believe in Jesus. If anything, he is simply trying to speed things up. He is simply trying to encourage Jesus, to give him a little nudge. He's trying to, to, to corner Jesus, to trap him in a corner, and then to provoke Jesus to finally act and, and, and kickstart the revolution that they have been so patiently waiting for. So when he understood that Jesus is not going to do this and is instead taken to be executed, we are told in the Gospel of Matthew that he repented and that he realized that he betrayed an innocent man. He betrayed innocent blood. He just got an innocent man killed. Because Jesus was not going to bring the revolution in the way that he expected. And in the Gospel of Matthew as well, we are told that, that he returned the money to the priest that, um, that gave it to him. And that then he went on to hang himself. The priest then used this money to buy a field. And because there was blood money, they called it the field of blood. In the book of Acts, however, we are told that Judas himself bought the field with the money that he got from the priests. And that he fell in the field headlong and his bowels gushed out and in some manuscripts of the book of Acts we read that he swelled up and when he fell he burst open and he guts poured out and this is connected to some other sources where we find extra biblical sources where we find traditions that speak about his whole body becoming swollen so that he couldn't even fit He couldn't even fit in a street that had buildings on both sides. As a matter of fact, not even his head would fit in such a street. Um, And his head swelled up so much that a doctor couldn't even locate his eyes, even though he was using an optical instrument. And, And this swelling led up to him finally bursting open and spilling his guts all over the field. And the stench that came out of his body could be felt even a whole century later. Now my point here is not to to argue or to make a case which of these accounts is, is more true to the historical way in which Judas Iscariot died. But I do think that it's important to notice that when our own ideas about the Messiah's mission or his goals start filling our heads to the point that our heads start getting swollen with these ideas, we're not in a good place. But more importantly than that, I want us to just take a moment to understand that the other 11 apostles had the same idea as Judas. They were waiting for the same thing, the restoration of the kingdom to Israel. The only difference was that they were a bit less violent somewhat less sure of, him, of themselves, and slightly more patient. And here they are in the upper room, making themselves ready, preparing for the restoration of the kingdom to Israel. And how did they do that? Well, they set criteria. As we read, one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, One of these must become a witness with us to his resurrection. Let's just pause right there. See, the 11 apostles, led by Peter, are setting up these criteria about who can be an apostle, a real apostle, a true apostle. But these criteria are impossible. And, And they are so hypocritical. Because... To say that the person must be someone who accompanied the rest of them from the beginning, from the time of the baptism of John, is very hypocritical because most of them were not there from the time of the baptism of John. With the exception of possibly Andrew and another unnamed disciples for, which, for whom we are told, for the two of them, at least in the Gospel of John, that they were disciples of John the Baptist… Andrew and the unnamed disciples are potentially the only ones who were there from the time of the baptism of John. If you read the rest, if you read all of the gospel narratives, you find different versions of the calling of the disciples. But doesn't matter which account you want to follow, Peter, for one, to begin with, was not there from the time of the, John, of the, of the baptism of John. But what's even more fantastic is that even though they set up these criteria that can't even be applied to to most of them in spite of these impossible and and very harsh and very restrictive criteria they actually found two people who fit this criteria they found two people joseph called bar also known as Justus or eustus and matthias so these two men fit the criteria even more than the apostles did and I guess at this point, the apostles realized that they need to, they need to relax a little bit. They were, there were actually people out there who were equally, if not more, qualified than them. Either that, or they realized that they're all equally unqualified when compared to these two guys. Because there are these two men here, which are equally, with equally impressive qualifications. Just one of them has a longer name. And in either case, they now have to decide what to do with them. So suppose they couldn't bring themselves to to make a decision when they realized that these guys are actually more qualified than them. So they decided to leave the decision to God. And they prayed. They cast lots or threw dice or whatever they did. And Matthias was chosen. And that was it. That's the last we hear in the Bible about Joseph, a.k.a. Barsabbas, a.k.a. Justice as well as the chosen one, Matthias. And that's it. The number was complete again. There's 12 of them now. And now what? Well, I guess they should just keep waiting for the restoration of the kingdom to Israel. But what the apostles, they seem to have forgotten or simply couldn't understand is that in the prophetic tradition, the restoration of the kingdom to Israel, or the restoration of Israel, was is not and never was an end in and of itself. If you read carefully the book of the prophet Isaiah, you find God, God there calling Israel over and over again to be a light to all nations. God speaks about a time when his house, his temple, his holy mountain, Zion, will be a house of prayer for all nations. Peter and the boys seem to have forgotten this. Or, for example, the words of the prophet Zechariah, who speaks about a future event where there will be conflict and warfare and eventually there will be victory. But this will be a victory in which the Lord will become king over all the earth. Or even the words, they forgot the words of the greatest of all the prophets, Jesus of Nazareth, who was there with them until just a minute ago. Who spoke not about the restoration of the kingdom to Israel, but about the establishment of a new kingdom, the kingdom of God. Jesus has been working on the establishment of the kingdom of God while he was still on this earth. And he also continued working on the establishment of the same kingdom now that he was gone. While he was here, he wasn't limited to the 11 or 12 apostles that were gathered there up in that upper room in Jerusalem. No, he already sent 70 people or 72, depending on the manuscript, in pairs. And and, and that's it, by the way. The word apostle simply means that, to be sent. Someone who is sent, someone who is a messenger, someone who is an emissary, if you will. Usually with a message or a task given to them. Furthermore... (laughs) There are other people who are legitimately and rightfully called themselves and other other people apostles. The most famous apostle of all time, arguably, was the apostle Paul, who did not fit the criteria set forward by the eleven in the upper room, but he surely fit the criteria set forward by Jesus, at least according to his own admission. And and people often contested uh, Paul's titles and credentials, and he defended himself. And he justified his calling and his title over and over and over again. One of the ways in which he justified his own credentials is by saying that Jesus appeared to him in the same way that he appeared to the twelve. But in that very same passage, he says that the same way in which Jesus appeared to him and to the twelve, he also appeared to more than 500 people. So whatever credentials Paul had was the same as the twelve, was the same as the five hundred. And already within within the book of Acts, we we, we find Paul and Barnabas both being called apostles. And Paul himself then continues continues calling various other people apostles. Andronicus, Junia, who for the record was a woman, Silas, Timothy, Apollos. And on top of that... (laughs) all the women that were present at the tomb after Jesus' resurrection were sent away with a message to proclaim. They were sent away to tell the rest of the disciples what had happened, which is why the church remembers at least one of them, Mary Magdalene, with the title, Apostle to the Apostles. So it seems to me that when the 11 apostles or the 120 believers sat down to ask the question, Will the real apostle please stand up? It seems to me that they were asking the wrong question. They were, if you would allow me, they were playing the wrong television game show. For the real question was not, Will the real apostle please stand up? But rather, Who wants to be an apostle? And this this game show, Who wants to be an apostle, runs by different rules. And the point is not to identify and and eliminate the imposters. The point is to become an apostle yourself. And I'm going to risk sounding very corny now and and, and ingloriously bringing this metaphor to ruin. But in this other game show, there are three lifelines. You can safely reduce your choices to 50-50. Jesus or Caesar. And if Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. You can also call a friend. Hello, somebody. You can call a friend, a friend that is up up on high. And when you call his name, he answers. And he sends the spirit of truth to guide you in all truth. And you can also, at any point, ask the audience. Because there is this cloud of witnesses. There is a long and rich history of people that came before you and who left their testimonies. So the real task was not to restore the number of apostles so that the kingdom can be restored to Israel. But to look out for the ways in which the kingdom of God is already being established. And then to partake in it. A task that became... Only too evident with the pouring out of the Holy Spirit later at Pentecost. Dear friends, I feel like a lot of us today are like the 11 apostles. We are waiting for some kind of restoration. And some are waiting for the restoration of the kingdom to Israel, literally. And those ideas have given birth to such convoluted and perverse theologies that led to the rise of the most atrocious ideologies and the most wicked practices. And you only need to look at what's happening in Gaza as we speak to understand what I'm talking about. People have used their their false ideas about the restoration of the kingdom to Israel to justify all sorts of violence, oppression, occupation, and apartheid, causing the deaths of thousands and the displacement and suffering and pain of millions. Others among us are waiting for some other kind of restoration. Some call it revival and reformation. And they're hoping, for, they're hoping for a return to the, the old ways, the good old days, the old-time religion. And the assumption, assumption is that if we could only somehow return to the way things were at the beginning, and by beginning they mean the 19th century, not the first, somehow everything would be much better and finally we would see God move and do great things through us. And some of us have very particular ideas about, about what we're trying to restore and where Jesus fits in that picture. And just like Judas, some of us go to great lengths to accomplish their vision. And some have very some others have very strict criteria and and, and, and borders that determine who gets to be included or excluded and who gets to be a part of. A group of the chosen, of the apostles, who gets to be a part of us. But let us all learn something from the disciples in the upper room. Let us all understand that the restoration of Israel only ever had one goal. To bring all people to God. That Zion is a house of prayer for all people, even if they pray differently from us. That Jesus came not to restore any previous kingdom, but to establish his own kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And let us also understand that the restoration and revival and reformation and awakening that we are looking for doesn't look like a return to the past. It looks like a leap of faith into the uncertain future. It doesn't, it doesn't come by trying to see how God worked in the past. But recognizing how he is and where he is working right now. Let us also appreciate that we need to hold very loosely our expectations of how God works. And let him lead us. And show us the way. We need, to, we need to empty our heads of our own ideas. Lest they become too heavy or too large or too swollen. And we need to do it soon. Otherwise, we risk bursting open and causing a stench. An unpleasant stench that could, could, could linger around for centuries. And we need to also perhaps relax or rethink the criteria that we set for who gets to be a part of us. We need to be careful that we don't impose on people criteria and expectations that we ourselves fall short of. And perhaps in doing so, we may find that in the end, in the final analysis, we are all equally qualified, equally adequate, because we are sent by Christ himself and at the same time that we are all equally unqualified all equally inadequate because we are all broken and wounded and hurt and in need of healing we need to open our eyes and see that just like in the days of the apostles there are others who are sent as well perhaps 70 perhaps 500 perhaps thousands, maybe millions. And some of them don't fit our criteria. Some of them are women. Some of them don't look like us. Some of them don't dress like us. Some of them don't worship like us. Some of them don't pray like us. But we are not the ones sending them. And we don't decide on their calling. This is the work of God. Dear friends, my prayer is that we start living in the kingdom of God and that we stop waiting for any restoration other than the time of refreshment and the restoration of all things. I pray that we may flip the script and that we may start playing a different game, that we may stop asking ourselves who is the real apostle and will the real apostle please stand up, but that we start listening to the one who is calling And standing at the door, knocking and asking the question, who wants to be an apostle? And my prayer is that we may may respond to this call by saying, here I am, a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Amen. This is the end of this broadcast. We hope you've been encouraged and inspired. For more information, please visit LondonLiveChurch.com